Kia ora tato, and thank you for joining me this evening with a drink in hand to think about the way in which the things that surround you were decided upon. Let's talk about data and the demise of the designer. Before I get into my talk, I want to highlight that I am not a statistician. I am, however, a designer who has worked extensively with people to understand their needs, and in many cases, amplify their own creative actions. I will not be challenging the role that big data plays in our contemporary world, although I will be making mention of gaps in data and how using incomplete data is generalizing design and leading to a range of products that surround us that are perpetually underwhelming and sometimes potentially harmful. This talk will meander through a series of ideas and examples, and hopefully by the end of it, you will have a better idea about the important role of design in bringing about positive change in the world. First off, a little bit about myself. As you can hear from my accent, I'm a South African, born and brought up in Johannesburg, only recently moved to this beautiful island in the Pacific. My dad was a proud Scot, an accountant who moved to South Africa in his 30s, my mum, second-generation English, and a graphic designer. I have a wonderful family who've joined me on the side of the world. My partner, Marie, who is a natural perfumer, and my son, Alistair, a five-year-old with a creative dial turned on to full throttle with little concept of impossibility. I'm the director of design at Tewaka Tuhura Ilam School of Fine Arts and Design at Waipapa Taumataro the University of Auckland. I met Peter Shand, the prior head of the school at Elam, at a design education conference in Johannesburg in 2019. After Peter had given a presentation on the new bachelor's in design program, which follows an innovative, collaborative, transdisciplinary and purposeful approach to design education, I went up to him and said, have you got any jobs? I was always a creative child. To the frustration of my parents, I would constantly disassemble my toys and try to figure out how they were built. The garden was re-landscaped to create exciting routes for my remote control car or to ride my BMX. My mum expected me to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and uncles, and I was to become an engineer. After six months of dry maths, I could not take it anymore. At school, I had won a maths and arts competition, received a voucher, which I used to buy a book on product design. And after my brief foray in engineering, I knew I wanted to study industrial design. My studies led me into an academic position in the Department of Industrial Design at the University of Johannesburg, where I worked for almost two decades before I met Peter. I've always tried to situate my practice and research and context and my work in design education has always focused on encouraging an approach to design that is relevant to place. Before I set off on a journey into data and design, I want to take you on a whistle-stop tour of design as a discipline. After the end of the Second World War, there was a significant capacity for manufacture that had been set up for production of arms across Europe and the US. And in a move to keep economies growing, this was transitioned into the production of goods for local markets. I was in this move towards a modern age, on the back of consumerism after the devastation of the war, that designers found their initial professional roles. 
When we look at the development of humans as a species, I would argue that design as an activity is something that is innately part of us. In an attempt to define design, Herbert Simon said that everyone designs who devises courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. More recently, Howard Nelson and Eric Stoltman said that as human beings, we continuously create things that help reshape the reality and essence of the world as we know it. When we create new things, be it technologies, organizations, processes, environments, ways of thinking or systems, we engage in design. To come up with an idea of what we think would be an ideal addition to the world and then to give it real essence, form, structure and shape, that idea then becomes the core of design as a human activity. Design is therefore a goal-orientated process focused on problem-solving, meeting needs, improving situations, or creating something new or useful. Most of these definitions speak to the benefit of design as a way of positively intervening in the world. When we return to the emergence of design as a profession, we see that the conception of professional design was at odds with many of the ways it is currently described. This was due to a small and strong pushback from designers in various design schools and creative movements challenging the design profession's conception as a champion of conspicuous consumption. In Germany, as designers continued to grapple with the horrors of the war, the Bauhaus and the Ulm School emerged to challenge the superficial nature of much of the design that emerged in the Allied nations. The Bauhaus called for form that followed function in response to the arbitrary decoration and fake reproductions of materials in post-war production. The Ulm School proposed that in the devastation of post-war Germany, design had a far more important role to play in redesigning society. To this day, we fight a tension between what has been described as technology-centered design and human-centered design. Technology-centered design was more autocratically orientated undertaken by designers or a client with a strong conception of something that they wanted to sell to a market. Here the designer could become a sort of demigod or an icon who used their creative license to imagine a different world. Human-centered design was a response to the problems that arose from this approach to design. It followed a more egalitarian approach of participation and co-design to arrive at things that people really needed. The technology-centeredness of post-war design has tended to become subsumed by human-centered design. As a whole, such a shift has been good, but there are problems that arise from such an approach to design. A significant one has been the shift of the designer from the creative lead into a position of facilitator. With a dogmatic approach to participation, the agency of the designer can become design by committee. Let's explore some of these complex issues that arise from this and how they might be amplified by a move into what I term data-centered design. A master's student of mine, Pierre Finley, undertook a design research project to reimagine the menstrual products available on the South African market. She worked with a diverse group of participants who used menstrual products and through a range of interviews and user groups arrived at a series of product concepts. Most were slight variations of what was already available on the market. But one was an innovative, reusable, external menstrual pad, which both reduced the cost of having to buy pads every month 
but also did not have to be inserted, which was found to be a cultural taboo for the other reusable cup type products on the market. And what Pierre found was that it sat outside of the frame of reference of participants, and therefore, from the participant's point of view, was not identified as a potential option for her to pursue. This problem has been seen in many other design studies, causing human-centered design to become limited only to incremental innovations. These innovations only move slightly beyond what currently exists because deeply rooted psychological and cultural factors in participants' initial responses um, to new technologies. This is opposed to radical leaps in innovation that are needed to significantly change what exists in the world. If Steve Jobs and Jonathan Ive had listened to participant responses when they developed the Apple iPod or iPad, both of these innovations would never have moved into reality beyond the designer's sketchbook. There is another popular example of human-centered design going awry. In this case, it is a user group consulting rooms of a design studio. They're developing a new Bluetooth speaker. In the room with the participants, against the wall, they have stacked different colored versions of the Bluetooth speakers. In the session, when the consultants ask what color the participants prefer, the participants' choice is spread across the whole gamut of colors that they could see. At the end of the session, the design consultant says to the participants, thanks for your time. In appreciation, please take one of the speaker prototypes with you when you leave. Guess what happened? They all chose the black speaker. This is a clear example of people saying what they think they want you to hear, but when it comes down to the chase, the, their real desire can be quite different. Another example of this comes from an honor student project we undertook with a community on the border between Mozambique and Zimbabwe. In 2008, we traveled to Grupo Desportiva Dominica in Mozambique, which is an integrated community football club that uses sport for social good. One of the student teams decided to work directly with the football players, and after watching a practice game and undertaking interviews with them, they identified a clear problem with their football boots. Most of these are designed and manufactured for plush, grassy pitches in Europe, not the hard, sandy and abrasive dirt that you find in Africa. The grip never really works because the studs are unable to penetrate the surface, and after a few games, they eventually wear down, and then they completely don't work. The students creatively partnered with local cobblers exploring ways to resole the boots using discarded car tires. This seemed a fantastic solution. Reusing waste to make much more durable football boots with much improved grip. However, despite all the enthusiasm from the football players during the process, when they got the final prototype, they could not get even one of the football players to test them on the pitch. What had gone wrong? Even though the students had followed a human-centered design approach, developing these new souls with the football players, what had not emerged in this process was the unseen power of social status and aspiration for the local players. They would all have rather gone to the local market with the little money that they had and buy some new cheap boots than repair their shoes in a way that only the poorest of the poor would do. The football players eventually told our students that if they wore their resold boots on the pitch, 
they would become the laughing stock of the community. What we all thought was a wonderful, sustainable, and functional solution to the problem failed due to our lack of understanding of the broader social dynamics at play in the Manika community. Afterwards, the players explained that having designers come from a university to work with them in their isolated rural community was such an honor that they could not disappoint the enthusiasm and creativity of the students. Here, the participatory process of human-centered design distorted the complex reality through the soccer player's desire to be part of the process, but due to the social dynamics at play, never feeling that they could honestly at any point until right at the end, say that they would never wear the repaired boots. In the era of the fourth industrial revolution and the claims that big data is radically going to redefine human progress, we now find human-centered design taking on even more extreme versions. And as I said, we'll call it data-centered design. Data together with statistics and algorithms help us to better understand the world. Theoretically, this helps us make better decisions. In practice, however, there are many pitfalls. One of these is that we can only use the data that we have, but what about the data that we don't? This hidden data has been dubbed dark data. Here is a relatively well-known example of dark data. Allied bombers return home from sorties over Europe with their fuselages full of bullet holes. They needed to add more armor to the planes. But you couldn't put armor everywhere because the plane would be too heavy to take off. Where do you put it? The obvious answer was to place it where the bullet holes were. But a man called Abraham Wald, working for the statistical research group in Manhattan at the time, said that was completely the incorrect deduction. He maintained the opposite was true, that the armor needed to go in the places where there were no bullet holes, because the bullet holes could only be seen in returning planes which had made it safely home. The location of these holes were where the bullets could go through without serious damage. The planes that didn't return, where the bullets hit the engine and the pilot's cockpit, were shot down and not seen. This was the dark data. And not seeing it would have led to the wrong design decision. There are more than 7.7 .7 billion people on Earth. More than half of these are women. An invisible woman exposing data bias in a world designed for men. Caroline Crater Perez explores how gender politics are affected and enhanced by big gaps in data. Perez argues that for most part, women are defined as a subtype of men, as opposed to having their own specific needs. Perez does not try to prove why the gender gap exists, but rather that it is a large area of dark data. In her book, she notes that women are more likely to be seriously injured in a car accident because crash test dummies are generally modeled on the average man, whose body proportions differ significantly from the average woman. Inspired by Perez's claim, Tim Nutbeam, an emergency medicine consultant at University Hospitals in Plymouth, undertook the first large-scale study using data from between 2012 and 2019 in the UK comparing differences in injury patterns across gender and the likelihood of getting stuck in a vehicle after an accident. It was found that although men were more likely to be involved in serious accidents and hospitalized, only 9% of men were stranded in wrecks in comparison to 16% of women, almost double the likelihood. 
In terms of injuries, men suffered more head, face, chest, and limb injuries, with women suffering more hip and spine injuries. This new data can now be used by automotive manufacturers to design safer cars for both men and women. But when we think about the incredible ranges of body shapes and sizes of people in the world, even using the average man or the average woman for a crash test does not necessarily result in accommodating the, um, humanities for diversity. Another one of my master's students' projects, this time by Marsha Nadir, was focused on redesigning glasses for South Africa. In Africa, there is a scarcity of prescription glasses manufacturers, and the majority of locally available eyewear frames are imported. I'd expect the same is probably true for, South, for, for New Zealand. Most of this imported eyewear comes from a single umbrella organization, which designs eyewear from a predominantly Eurocentric point of view. There are currently only two types of eyewear fit in the world. The regular fit, which is based on European facial data, and the Asian or global fit, which was developed in reaction to the inappropriateness of the regular fit for this market. In South Africa, a country with a significantly diverse population, there was an opportunity for properly fitting eyewear that is often not accommodated by either of these fits. Improper fitment causes discomfort, leads to blurry vision, and long-term vision problems. Fit is, however, not the only problem with the currently imported frames. The South African eyewear industry is a complex system with both social and technical challenges that often influence the process of how someone would go about acquiring prescription glasses. Marsh's design study was undertaken to address some of the local eyewear complexities through the design of adaptable eyewear that could be produced locally whilst better considering the needs of local glasses wearers. At one point in her study, Marsha was undertaking participant observation on an optometrist when a young black woman came in to get a new pair of glasses. After trying on almost every pair in the store, in utter frustration, she sadly exclaimed, my face is not designed for glasses. Big data is touted to radically alter the world around us. But if it is unable to accommodate for redress in society, all it does is duplicate an unequal world instead of transforming it for the better. To work with data means that one needs to creatively imagine the negative spaces, the dark data. An ill-considered or wholehearted dive into data does not mean that it captures the full complexity of the situation. This requires creative and designerly ways of thinking. Unfortunately, I see a lot of examples where doggedly following data without creative consideration leads to either bland or truly bizarre results. Let's take a walk down the aisle of a chemist to get ourselves a razor. Do I have thick stubble or invisible hair that needs to be removed while I flex my calf muscle and smile beguilingly? The men's razors are heavy. Too much muscle power in my arms. A rounded razor head for women because of curves, eventually you decide to put up with a pink glitter, butterfly turns into a flower because of the swivel head action, and then you pair it with a Mac 3 bladed razor head because they're just more effective and cheaper. The supplier gets a positive for the wife razor and a positive on the husband razor with no data to capture the enormous compromise on taste, thus perpetuating the bizarre gender stereotypes in product. My wife asked me to include this bit because it's the main reason she quit the fashion industry. 
Here's a typical interaction from a laydown. This is apparently a meeting to present the range for the next season. Middle management. I don't think your selection of blazers is commercial enough. What prints sold well last year? Buyer. Polka dots and leopard middle management. Okay. Let's make one blazer, polka dot, and the other one, leopard print. Designer. That's just weird. Everyone else, great idea. And that's how those super strange styles end up on the discount trail. The automotive sector is full of this, from the design of cars that some find incredibly cute to the same car being voted as the world's most ugly. Strange details that are added for no seemingly functional use, or the styling of vehicles that would indicate that only a bodybuilder could drive them. Then at the opposite end of the automotive spectrum, last week I saw a comparison of 23 SUV side profiles, all of the photos of different manufacturers' cars in white with no identifying branding. If the collage didn't have the names of the 23 manufacturers written next to them, you could have easily been excused for thinking that they were just slight variations of the same concept. Data drives both the strange and similar aspects of automotive design. As technology changes, data also leaves us stuck in the past. After a visit to a recent international automotive show, Lloyd Alter noted that, with a switch from gasoline to electric cars, we have an opportunity to start over, to design cars that are safer for pedestrians and cyclists, that enclose more interior and less exterior that use less material and less energy, and are better for everyone on and off the road. Instead, we appear to just be getting more of the same old, same old. A further example that we can all relate to is music, which is not dissimilar to design, but has also been extensively impacted on by big data. The music industry has transitioned from the top 100 charts based on record sales to an up-to-the-second understanding of who is listening to what on streaming music platforms. Brian Moon, professor of music at the University of Arizona, explains that songwriters and distributors now know more than ever how people listen to music and which sounds they seem to prefer. Social media is also playing a significant role in defining what is popular. Does this mean that algorithms will end up developing popular music, resulting in more and more cookie-cutter artists? With a music industry like this, would bands like Queen or Nirvana have ever been known to the extent that they did in the past? Would they have not both been maybe too off-center or too quirky or too strange for the bland music we find in popular music culture? Back in 2009, design leader Google, Douglas Bowman, explained his reason for exiting the technology giant. When a company is filled with engineers, it turns to engineering to solve problems. Reduce each decision to a simple logic problem, remove all subjectivity, and just look at the data. The data eventually becomes a crutch for every decision, paralyzing the company and preventing it from making any daring design decisions. Yes, it's true that a team at Google couldn't decide between two blues, so they tested 41 shades between each blue to see which one performed better. I had a recent debate over whether a border should be three, four, or five pixels wide, and was asked to prove my case. 
I can't operate in an environment like that. I've grown tired of debating such minuscule design decisions. I miss working with incredibly smart and talented people I got to know there, but I won't miss a design philosophy that lives or dies strictly by the sword of data. Returning to myself, I'm not calling for a return to egocentric, technology-centered design of the past, but I do believe that designers need to take more creative agency in the ever-expanding data-centric world. Back in 1933, philosopher, art historian, athlete, and poet, Sutsu Yangi said, these days, personal taste has suffered a decline. Colors have become garish, forms flimsy, and designs hideous. It is only natural that surrounded by such objects, our sense of beauty should be dulled. An elite group of artists may produce objects that are aesthetically pleasing, but that in itself doesn't make the world around us any more beautiful. On the contrary, the influence of the ugly and deformed continues to grow even stronger. If it is our ideal to live in a world surrounded by beautiful things, in a virtual kingdom of beauty, then we must raise the ordinary things of our daily lives to a higher level. In 2015, prolific designer Hela Jungerus explained that she believes what is required is a more holistic approach to design. She says, more values than just the new. That's really what I'm looking for. What can be inside an object beyond just new? Is striving for the new the main problem of our consumer society? Why does a piece of art never become boring? I think it's because it's holistic. Good art triggers the imagination over and over again. That's a feature that we seem to have lost in design. Both of these reflections on design are not about holding the designer up on a pedestal, nor are they suggesting the designer become a facilitator. Rather, they take a position on the important role that design can play in positively and creatively redefining the world. As we find ourselves faced with the complexities of social, economic, and ecological collapse, we cannot keep on the same path that has served to get us here, but rather we need to creatively reimagine a future where we see ourselves as connected with the entire world as opposed to a misguided concept that we control it. In the way I introduce myself at the start of this presentation, designers are inquisitive people. We are constantly looking at the world around us and then finding creative ways to improve it. With the world as it is, this can be rather exhausting. I believe that we are all inherently creative. However, creativity is a skill. It is something that has to be nurtured, trained, and honed. It is an abductive thinking process, a synthesis that cannot be reduced to an algorithm or a method. However, I admit that the world around us has become more and more complex. And thus, designers need to be able to work across a wide range of knowledge domains. For us to arrive at sustainable outcomes, designers need to understand the complex interplays between socio-technical and ecological systems. Data, therefore, becomes incredibly useful in helping to frame the present. But as discussed, it has its dark side. And furthermore, we will not be able to shift anything by reflecting on what people are currently used to. We don't only need designers to engage with the complex problems ahead of us, but we do need designers to take the lead 
and transdisciplinary teams that can explore and creatively intervene in the systemic and wicked problems we face, both on a local and a global level. We need to be fluid in our ability to zoom in on the details and zoom out to explore the systems that surround and interconnect them. This is the approach to design that the new design program at the University of Auckland has taken. It is different to the siloed approaches to design that we find in design education that separates out industrial design, fashion design, jewelry design, graphic design, etc. We are focused on the creative agency of design in collaboration with conjoint students from a wide array of disciplines in the university. They bring their deep disciplinary knowledge into practical projects focused on complex problems where design becomes the creative bridge to reimagine a future in which we can all thrive. Thank you for listening. With those examples that you gave, do you think it's more a case of the fact that we haven't refined our sense to analyse data? Because in those examples, the data was there, or just wasn't seen. I, yeah, I mean, in some ways, yes. But I think it takes, it takes creative insight to be able to actually identify um, some of those gaps. You know, um, I think that, um, yeah, definitely a lot of the examples that I provided was about you know, seeing the things that were there. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a, a design student for the first time and, and learning to do drawing, um, one, one of the exercises that we had to do was be able to draw the negative space. Um, and I think that in itself is, um, yeah, is a creative skill. Um, it's, not, it's, um, it's something that takes you um, outside of what's in front of you. Um, and, <clears throat> I mean... Um, fixation bias is a, you know, something that, that exists um, in driving where you see something and you kind of end up heading for it. And I think that that's what ends up happening when you've got a lot of data that's telling you something, um, but you're not actually looking outside of that. Um, so, yes, it's about looking, I, I suppose, at what's outside of it. Um, but I do think that that takes a level of creative agency to be able to do. Yeah. What is the role of our feeling towards a product in the designer. Yeah. Yeah, so the question was about design and emotion and, and what is our role in creating that um, in products. And yeah, I think that that's inherently a really important aspect of, um, of design, of good design. Our ability to um, bring narrative and story into products and for people to be able to relate to that um, is incredibly important. And that really speaks to the creative aspect of design, as opposed to this, um, you know, just looking at things for what they are in data. Um, I think it also becomes really important um, from a sustainability point of view, because um, when one has an emotional attachment to an object or a thing that has a life beyond a lot of other products where you have no connection to them whatsoever, there are a lot of designers who use emotional considerations um, as a way of being able to increase the sustainability of products. How does one know if the data you're looking at is, I guess, the correct data? The, or how do you kind of do an analysis of your analysis of the data? Mm. That really comes down to, to having a rigorous process. Um, but I also think it comes down to having um, 
uh, transdisciplinary teams or multiple perspectives from which to actually look at the problem at hand. And I also think the other aspect is, um, is one around time, where if you're trying to rush something, you know, ultimately you're going to end up you know, having to come to a, a solution at a, at a really, um, within a, a relatively narrow frame. Um, and um, I can honestly say that a lot of creative thinking happens um, in the spaces in between, you know, when you're not under pressure. I think having a rigorous process in the first place and having you know, m multiple dimensions to look at it um, and then having the time to be able to explore um, will hopefully allow you to, to ensure um, that you head in the right direction. Um, and I think you know, one of the, the analogies I also spoke to of, of zooming in and zooming out I think is also really important um, because sometimes the problem itself is defined so narrowly that when you actually um, step outside of the problem itself, you actually find that, it, that the issues set outside it. What's the closest we can get to not having that data? So where's good enough? The question is uh, about, I suppose, change and the fact that because everything's changing, the data itself is always changing. Um, one of the, the comments that I made in my talk was about the fact that data talks about what is and what has happened. Um, but I think where design um, plays a really important role is about what hasn't yet actually taken place. And I think that that's the important creative aspect of design, which data doesn't cover. Um, so design futures, um, speculative design, ways of looking into the future um, that um, present the world in a different way, create opportunities for us to, um, I suppose, explore what might happen or to explore how we might do things differently. Um, I don't, you know, data is always going to be constantly updating and there's going to um, always be aspects that are dark. But w what design does is it allows us to work with that, but also to say, well, what if and how could we do this differently? So there's a quote from Henry Ford that says, if I had asked people, they would have told me build faster horses. This leads to the question that there are more constructive questions to ask mm. and then questions that you shouldn't be asking for data. What are the right questions? It follows on from my last comment. It's, it's really about creatively looking at you know, what it is that you're trying to do. The right questions are the questions that are going are gonna to challenge um, the status quo um, and are, are going to create innovative leaps as opposed to these kind of sequential changes. Thank you.